Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show with Janice Lindstrom. I am Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of this show. Today is Thursday, June 18th, 2015. Happy birthday to my sister Susie. Uh, and joining me today is Dr. Megan Mascal from her hammock in North Dakota. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, hey, Megan. We get like two weeks of really nice weather a year. I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's finally stopped raining for a bit here in Texas, and uh, we are meeting today to talk about the Music Therapy Perspectives, Volume 33, Number 1. So uh, these shows always kind of run over, so we're just going to jump right in. Welcome to Journal Club. And uh, this this edition opened with a nice editorial from Tony Meadows, and I really liked the conversational and news-filled nature of this editorial. Uh, it was a nice summary of the edition. So I enjoyed that part. Mm-hmm. I agree. And then uh, the, the next page has a considering theory in practice, and it, it kind of sets up the uh, next few articles. So the next few articles where are where um the guy whose name I can't pronounce identifies and describes a practice turn in music therapy theory. And then uh Ken Agan is the the next article discusses epistemological, methodological and pragmatic foundations of evidence based practice and how these affect the profession of music therapy. And then Deanna Hansen Abermite focuses on the functions of music as a stimulus for the therapeutic change. So um, I thought it was a good a few paragraphs of here's what's coming up, but he did use a lot of large words that I had to uh, keep a dictionary close by. <laughs> I, I looked up so, a few things myself. Yeah. So this is a special focus. These first three articles are the special focus, considering theory in practice. And uh, the first article, but is it Stiggy? Stig? Stig? I, you know what, I don't know, and I'm not going to try because I would feel really terrible yeah. for pronouncing it. I don't mean to be um, disrespectful to this doctor from Norway. I, I can, I'm not able to pronounce his name. But he wrote The Practice Turn in Music Therapy Theory. And um, I had a, a really difficult time with this article, I have to say. I read the whole thing. And I'm still confused about what a practice turn actually means. And I don't know if it's because there's like a cultural barrier between me and this person from Norway, or an edu- there's definitely an educational barrier difference between me and him. But I, I just didn't get it. I, so I'm going to – I read the article too. And there were parts of it that I really, really understood and kind of grabbed onto. And then there were other parts where I felt a little bit confused. And, again, I think part of that is probably a, a difference in how we were trained and, um, you know, educational backgrounds, that kind of thing. But the one thing I – it's actually my favorite sentence in the entire article was in the very first paragraph. And, and uh, what – the author says is that theoretical insights and key research questions emerge from practical context. And that really 
resonated with me. Um, this idea that what we, how we come up with theory and how we do research um, and how we explore the concept of what is music therapy really comes from how we practice music therapy. And it, and it has, right? And that's one thing that he mentions right. is that, you know, we had music therapy programs in hospitals before we ever had music therapy training programs. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So maybe that's what he means is that we need to look at how music therapy is actually being practiced and use that to inform what we do and how we define music therapy instead of learning about like doing the academic knowledge and the research about music therapy and using that to define what we do and how we define it. Maybe that's what he means. Could be. And he gave a real world example, which where he talks about a client that he had and uh, he was in a treatment team meeting and uh, he, I don't know, talked about, uh, even this real world example didn't actually give me an idea, but he just said that, that uh, he helped this client through, uh, integrate better into his preschool, even though the client said, I hate music or I don't like music. And uh, he just didn't take that as the 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 engaging Paul musically in the music therapy room. He didn't take that as the only way to do it. You know, he would operate. He would take him outside of that. I don't know. I I'm not speaking very clearly I, about this article. I just didn't understand it. I think one I think one thing to keep in mind is that on the very last, I think it's on page ten. Uh, the author says, to settle on given explanations should be less of a goal than, than to open up new discursive space. And so I have to say that for me, um, I feel like we spend a lot of time arguing about theory and what theory is right and what theory is wrong, and my theory is better than your theory. And, mm-hmm. and you and I have talked about that before. And, and I think that does take away from practice. I think if we get so wrapped up in in theory that that, that takes a little bit away, not for everybody, but I think it does take a little, has the potential to take a little bit away from how we work with our clients if we just get so focused. Mm, I agree which with actually, that. Which actually takes us into Kim Agin pretty well. Okay. <laughs> um, All right. And this is... And this is the one I wanted to talk about because I, as a researcher, I found this article really um, challenging and interesting on a number of different levels. I wrote a lot of notes on this one. Um, All right. So this one is the critique of evidence-based practice in music therapy. Yes. And and this this concept of evidence-based practice, I've presented on evidence-based practice before. Um, Dr. Blythe Lagasse talks about it a lot. It is it is the new go-to phrase um, in the world of medicine. It's this evidence-based practice. And what um, Dr. Aiken talks about is, you know, is that even necessarily applicable to music therapy? You know, is music therapy such a different beast that we can't really, you know, we can't really talk about necessarily evidence-based practice the way that we would, say, in medicine? or even in a close cousin like psychology. And um, he makes a couple of points that 
that I really that really resonated with me. One of them was on page 18. Um, oh, good, I even remembered to highlight it. It says, the tenets of evidence-based practice threaten the legitimacy of music therapists' clinical knowledge and ability to act upon it because if EVP methods are the only ones supported, clinicians lose decision-making powers over what might be best for their clients. And I, I completely agree with that, right? There are times when you know, a certain research article might say, oh, well, this, you know, you should do X, Y, Z if your client, your patient has A, B, C. But there's that little voice in the back of your head that says, no, I really think I need to try, you know, H, I, J. Um, And I think that sometimes if we get, if we're so married to this concept of there has to be evidence for what we're doing, that sometimes we, we neglect our clinical judgment. Um, and could potentially wind up doing harm, you know, if we do neglect our clinical judgment. He also I agree makes, with that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. And there was a, I want to say there, were, there was a school district in this area that was really going to this evidence-based practice model and uh, said that they were not going to use any strategy that did not have randomized control trials behind it. And so that I remember that the music therapists were really um, having some difficulty in this district. And I don't remember how that out, what the outcome of that was. I don't think that, you know, the music therapists ended up losing their jobs or anything like that. But um, I, I remember thinking when I heard that, that, um, that that makes no sense. It doesn't take into account the years of experience that the therapists working with these students have and the you know, the ways that it does work. I mean, it doesn't have to be printed in a journal to prove that it works. I, I don't Well, think. and he also makes a comment, I can't remember now where it is, probably on the same page, where it says that um, evidence-based practice can benefit some approaches or theoretical orientations at the cost of some other ones. And I think about this in the field of music therapy, right, let's take – Let's let let me really wade into the deep end here and take neurologic music therapy and psychodynamic music therapy, both of which mm-hmm. are legitimate approaches to music therapy. But it can be a lot easier to write, you know, to do a randomized control child, say, with neurologic music therapy protocols than it could be with psychodynamic protocols. And if we just go strictly by an evidence-based model, well, then theoretically that could really lead to the detriment, that could be to the detriment of of a psychodynamic approach to music therapy, which, again, is a legitimate theoretical model for music therapy. So I I understand the point he's making. The flip side of that, though, is that evidence is really important, Right, we can't just walk around. I mean, when was the last time you tried to call Blue Cross Blue Shield and say, "You know, I just know it works. Right. I just know, I just know that my my clients feel better. I I know, I just know that it works. Trust me on this. Can I have my reimbursement, please?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, I, I think that's that was kind of the takeaway from this article is that I don't. I don't like randomized control trials. I feel like they were designed by pharmaceutical companies to only a, a, 
fact, and, and they were they originally only measured white men anyway, and I am not a white male, and I know a lot of people that aren't white men, and so drugs don't affect me the same way, and I feel like it's just, it's not uh, the best way to be. However, I I don't think that we should not do any randomized control trials either. I mean, what, I, I feel like we need to take all of it into consideration. Absolutely. And I do think that I think that there needs to be a way for us to create research studies and to help support, I'm thinking as a researcher, there has to be a way for me to be able to help support clinicians, people who are like you that are out there in the field. There, there needs to be a way for me to do that in a scientifically rigorous way, as scientifically rigorous as possible, that also reflects and respects the discipline from which I come, which is music therapy. Right. Um, you know, we don't study economics necessarily the same way that we study pharmaceuticals. So right. Well, let's why, hope and, not. Or psychology. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Or psychology. So there should be a way to do that. And I will say that I think this is one of the reasons why there's a big push for mixed methodology uh, I was just thinking that, that. I think and, that and actually, was re- and really important keynote speech. Yeah. Well, I think that was a really important keynote speech. Wasn't that at the last conference, the guy that spoke yep, about the next conference research? And, yeah. And I know that some people were like, well, this isn't really a good keynote. But I thought it was important for us clinicians and non-researchers to really understand what the trends in research are and to know how to use a mixed method research in um, informing our practice. So I don't know. I think, and I think that's right. I think that that's a good way to go. We're at the point now in um, sort of the funding cycle uh, from the federal level where federal agencies really want to see a mixed methods approach. And oh, I think nice. in music therapy, you almost have to. Because, yeah, you can collect numbers, but it's really important to talk to people and figure out what those numbers actually mean. Right, and really the only way to control the music is to use recorded music so everybody's getting the same. But that's not how music therapy is practiced most of the time. Right. And so you can't control how I sing versus how you sing. Um, we're not. We're just not the same people, and we're not going to do it the same way. So, yeah. So kudos to Dr. Agan for really making me think on a summer day. Mm-hmm. I know. All right. So then the next one is uh, Deanna Hansen-Abramite's uh, conceptual methodology to define the therapeutic function of music. And I read uh, Mary Jane Landiger's uh, blog a lot, and she does these TME Tuesdays, therapeutic music mm-hmm. uh, uh, something. I forgot the E stands for, on Tuesdays. And uh, she... Um, outlines her strategy and then um, does a table with the therapeutic function of music. And I think I think it looks like she takes it from a presentation that Deanna did about this uh, what, when she was developing this. But I thought this was an interesting, I, I don't know, this one made me think too. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be a, a really neat way to um, help, I was thinking specifically students, to think about the elements of music and how they work. But it, I think that's, it would also be funny. good that's for exactly clinicians the note to I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it would also be good for researchers to use to define elements, the elements of music in an operational way and, and define 
you know, how their research study is designed a little bit with the music um, more specifically. But it'd also be good for clinicians who really want to understand how they are working with their clients. But it seems like it would be really um, cumbersome to get started with because it's very detailed. Yeah, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of um, I I love this setup for this and the way that she thinks about the elements of music. And what's interesting is I didn't actually start to think about music that way so strategically until I took a musicology class um, when I was in my Ph.D. coursework. And the musicology professor, who didn't know anything about music therapy, really challenged me to think about the different elements of music and how they get used in the therapeutic process and how that, you know, changes the therapeutic process. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I, I, wish, I wish I had thought about this, you know, when I was doing my equivalency work. Um, I'd probably be a better music therapist now if I had. And so watch out, mm-hmm. UND students. You're going to have to do this this fall. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing about my students. <laughs> I know. Yeah, welcome to the academic world. Um, but I, I think it's sort of like, remember writing your first session plans, how it took forever to write your first session plans? Yeah. And now, you know, yeah. and now you grab a and now you grab a sticky note maybe and you jot them down. And Right, or I just grab some instruments and I I Or you grab do it. You know, or you, you know what your I goals and perspectives are. You know what your clients right. can do. So you just grab your stuff and go. I kind of look at it as this way, you know, probably the first few times that my students do this, they're like, oh, no, Dr. Masto's making us do another horrible long thing. Get it. They'll get the hang of it, and it'll change the way that they think. And then, right. And then they, won't, then they won't have to do it anymore. Well, and if you analyze music this deeply and how it functions, how each musical element functions therapeutically, Think about how, what what good music therapist you're going to be training. Oh yeah, you're going to be a really good music therapist when you understand your tool that well. I think Betsy King blew my mind when I was a grad student at Iowa, a grad equivalency student, and she talked about and I, this might have been her dissertation. She talked about the power of seventh chords hmm. in a presentation, and I went into a session the very next day. And I actually was using one of her songs, you know, from that collection of books, Learning Through Music. And there was this one part where I thought, you know what, I'm going to plop down the seventh. This chord is acting like a dominant chord. I'm going to plop down the seventh and see if it cues the behavior, if it, if it cues the response that I'm looking for. And sure, mm-hmm. shooting, it did. And ever since yeah. then, and my, my students will tell you that I talked to them about the power of seventh chords all the time. So, see, I don't say it that succinctly or clearly, I think, but I understand that power of a seventh chord, so maybe that would help me articulate it better. I'll have to think about that. I think it's the tritone. I think it's the tritone. <laughs> hmm. All right, so the next article is by uh, Kathy McKinney and Jessica Newsom-Hoyle. I, pro- I said those names backwards. Jessica Newsom-Hoyle is the the first author, and Kathy McKinney is the second author. I don't know if that matters, but, again, I try to be respectful. So they wrote Music Therapy in the Bereavement of Adults with Intellectual Disabilities, a Clinical Report. And so this is one of the things that I like about the music therapy perspectives is the case studies. I like reading case Uh studies. 
simply because it helps to describe in a very real way what a music therapy session looks like and how you can use it in a particular way. So I thought this was a nice resource for how to explore grief issues with the uh, with this population, adults with intellectual disabilities. And I, I know that that is underserved, that, that adults with intellectual disabilities do experience grief, and, uh, and, and I know that they are not served well when – in this in this way, at least not in my observations. Um, but this clearly described the session structure and it offers resources like the picture book for adults. Um, and it, so I've, I found that this would be an important article to read if, if you work with intellectual disabilities um, so that you can get a beginning understanding of how you might address grief and loss issues with your clients. And this is a big one, working in hospice care, you know, uh, there's now that people who have, especially Down syndrome, because, you know, mm-hmm. years ago, there's, there are specific heart conditions that are associated with Down syndrome, and so years ago, those heart conditions were not treated, and so consequently, mm-hmm. people with Down syndrome died very early. Well, now, we do treat those. People are living longer, and then they're getting older and developing the same types of illnesses that typically developing people are. Um, And I remember Mm -hmm. during my internship having a hospice patient who had Down syndrome, and that was a real challenge, you know, trying to explain to her things because she had cancer, you know, trying to explain to her concepts like cancer and that it wasn't treatable. And um, so even, even if somebody who doesn't necessarily do a lot of bereavement work, I don't do a lot of bereavement work, but I do, you know, I'm there while the patient is in is still alive up through the time of death, that I, even this, I think, provides some really great ideas for things to do with, with my patients that, are, that do have an intellectual disability and are maybe having trouble understanding what's happening. And that's often what clinicians are looking for when they read research is ideas for what to do. So Darn to I find it easier to get those ideas from music therapy perspectives articles than I do from the JMT, although the Journal of Music Therapy does, it can spark some ideas as well. It's just easier when you see that case example, and then you can kind of relate it to your own work. Mm-hmm. Agreed. The next article is called The Use of the ISO Principle as a Central Method in Mood Management, a Music Psychotherapy Clinical Case Study. And um, the purpose of this article, it says in the first paragraph, is to explore the use of the ISO principle as a method of music management from its roots into modern-day clinical practice. And the ISO principle is something that we have all learned in our uh, music therapy education, and we all talk about it. And uh, I I don't know that we have done – I mean, there – this article shows there has not been a lot of research done about the ISO principle since the, uh, was it 74, if I'm remembering correctly, when it was first studied, uh, researched and presented. article offers a really nice review of the use of the ISO principle through history and then a case example of how to implement it in a very methodical way. So um, I think this one, I think, I believe that all music therapists should read this because, uh, uh, every music therapist I've ever talked to talks about the ISO principle. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of the very first things that we teach students, right? We we mm-hmm. talk to them about all, you know, human beings have been musical, we've been making music for 30,000 years, 
And, you know, after we give them 30,000 years of history in five minutes, you know, almost the very next thing we say is, we talk about World War One, World War Two. we say in the 1948, Dr. Ira Altshuler, you know, right. gave us right. this term, the ISA principle, and here's what it is. We meet people where they are. Um, yeah, and then and then we sort of forget about it mm-hmm. for a while. Right. But I do. I right. completely I agree. Think- I think this is such a great case study, and I agree that people should read it. One, for one reason, is besides the fact that what they did, they do with the ISA principle, which you're going to talk about. But I think, too, it's really important to recognize that the clinician started out with a different plan mm-hmm. and then recognized that there were things that were going on with the client that meant that that plan was not going to work. And so the ethical thing to do was to change the plan to meet the needs of the client. Yes. I was. I Which thought that was weird. very interesting, too. Because I, I, when I was reading through the case study, I really thought that they were going to talk about the the how the Bonnie method and of guided imagery and music, which was her original plan um, or technique that she was using to address her plan, um, I w- incorporated the ISA principle. But I, I was not expecting the article to to show that they scrapped that for or they put it on hold so they could address this other issue, and then later pick up where they were with the with the previous issue. That's a good mm-hmm. point. All right. And then the next article is uh, the role of music therapy and ritual drama in transformation during imminent death. Um, I did not get a good grasp on what ritual drama was, and I didn't really relate well to this article, but I did like how it explained um, countertransference and how it can be helpful in therapy. So um, this one is, it, you know, it's definitely uh, qualitative mm-hmm. as a case study, right? And uh, mm-hmm. and it does, I did not find, I, I skimmed this one because I wasn't really that interested in, um, I didn't see a, a direct application to my work. And uh, I wasn't really interested in the details of how the um, case study was designed. Um so I scanned certain parts of it, and I did really like the explanation of countertransference as a tool in therapy because I have a tough time understanding that, and this one does a great job of explaining that. Agreed. All right. Then there's an article called An Unguided Music Therapy Listening Experience of Luigi Nono's Fragmente Stil Diotima a case report. So um, I had a tough time understanding this one as well. This one um, talked about the a receptive music therapy listening experience of this really demanding composition. Um, and I did not see how I could relate um, this piece of music and the way it was used in this case study to work that I'm doing I probably could have gotten something from the Buddhism and impermanence paragraph or paragraphs and the Buddhism and mindfulness paragraph. So maybe if you are interested in more mindfulness, this can give you some um, directions to take. But other than that, I didn't really take much from this study. Yeah, and I think that's what's great about the music therapy profession and, you know, understanding that there are different 
theoretical approaches and every approach is valid, that, yeah. you know what, chances are that there are, you know, I, I can almost guarantee that there are music therapy, you know, no use for something else that you and I find really valuable. Right, they find right, really absolutely. Valuable. Which is good because the people that we work with are all different, and so not the same thing is going to work for all people. Exactly. As Dr. Gefeller and Dr. Adamek used to say in class, there is no magic purple pill. Isn't that a shame? <laughs> I know. Wouldn't that be nice? But, <laughs> but no, I guess then we'd lose out on a lot of variety, which is also nice. Yeah. So then the, the next article is called A Guide to Selected Alternate Guitar Tunings for Music Therapists. This one I found really applicable. And um, I didn't learn a lot of alternate guitar tunings in my guitar semester we just had when i was an undergrad we just had one semester of guitar and uh passed a proficiency at the end of that semester so we didn't learn a whole i learned how to tune my guitar really well but i didn't learn how to do alternate tunings and how to use them even though i've used some of these alternate tunings before for various reasons but i liked the explanation of what they were and um examples of um composed pieces that or songs that actually use them. So like the drop D is used um, in Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. Or Actually, that's an example of a power chord. But the, the drop D tuning is used in uh, the Fleetwood Mac song, The Chain, and Neil Young's Ohio and a Harvest Moon. And so it gives some examples of songs that I might know and the tunings that are used in there and explains why the way that you play it on the guitar may not sound exactly like it does on the on the radio. It's funny. I got an electric guitar for Mother's Day. And <laughs> so I have been, I have, uh, yeah, it's it's awesome. It's purple. Um, <laughs> but so I have, and I tried to, it's funny because I, I was homesick and I, for a very long time this spring, and so I was, as I was doing my breathing treatments, I would pull out my guitar and play. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get Fishing in the Dark to work to the drop B tuning. So, so when I read this, I, I this is like a as somebody a novel electric guitar player. I'm very excited about this article because it's going to help me a lot. And it even gave um, some suggestions in the last paragraphs on using alternate tunings for an active music making experience, and um, talked about how you can have several guitars and tune them to different open chords, and then direct them like you would when you're using. Um, uh, like the ORF instruments or the tone chimes mm-hmm. in chordal structures. So I thought that was really interesting, too. And then the final article is Music Therapy Advocacy for Professional Recognition, a Historical Perspective and Future Directions. And I bet all of us could have guessed just by reading the title that that was written by Kimberly Senamore. <laughs> uh <laughs> And um, this one, I think, is another one that all music therapists should read because it goes over the history of um, advocacy and how our professional associations in their various um, forms advocated and how that developed through the decades. And then um, talked about what's currently being done, and it gave a really nice description of how – music therapy is being advocated, state recognition is being advocated for and what the process for the state recognition is. And 
And then it also talks about how you can be involved, like the different ways that you can be involved in state recognition. And if you've paid attention at all to Social Media Advocacy Month in January, um, you know that it does. being involved doesn't always mean being on the state task force. That's like the most involved way or way to be, the, mo the highest level of involvement. Um, but you can also... Every time you answer the question, what is music therapy, you are an advocate for music therapy because uh, one more person knows what music therapy is. Absolutely. And um, being in North Dakota and sort of being on the other side of that process where we have a license, I'm on the Board of Integrative Healthcare, so I'm on the board that oversees licensure in the state of North Dakota and also deals with misrepresentation um, and people who, you know, try to call themselves music therapists but are not trained or board certified and consequently are not eligible for a license. Um, I, this is a really important topic in our state. And this is another one of those heads up, UND Music Therapy Practicum students, you will be reading this <laughs> article this semester. Mm -hmm. um, we're focusing, every semester we focus on something different, and this coming semester we're focusing on um, advocacy and reimbursement in the practicum seminar. And oh, that's so they interesting will, because... I was wondering if in North Dakota, since you have the license, in states that have the license, I kind of get this sense of, woo, we're done with it now. But even in this oh, article, no. it explains how you're, how you're not done <laughs> once you get there. You're just on a different part of advocacy. <laughs> yes, it's a different thing, and there's still a lot. And what I like about this article is it talks a lot about relationships and education. Right, mm -hmm. and and I I spent a stint uh, as an undergraduate as a marketing major for a very brief, uh, terrifying time. It was one of those moments <laughs> where my parents realized, oh my God, she's a music major. What's she going to do with her life? <laughs> right, and they made me go take business classes. But marketing <laughs> is really about education and relationships, and advocacy is about education and relationships. And so we have to do that in North Dakota on a regular basis. We have to educate not only the public but also our governor and our um, other members of the Board of, of Integrative Healthcare um, and, the, you know, and, and potential students, people who want to enter the profession and people who are moving into the state from other areas where maybe they haven't had to have a license. So there's, there's still education. There's still relationship building that happens. It's just a little bit different because we're on a different piece of the pathway, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, and I look at like my brother is a physical therapist and, and they have a license in Texas. And so he just goes to work and doesn't really do anything. Like everybody knows what he does and he just goes to work and does his thing. And he doesn't, he's not involved in the associations. He's not involved in, in defining physical therapy or anything like that. And I really think that that has actually been a detriment in his career. I think that music therapists, serve themselves better if they learn what advocacy is and what the what the associations are doing about it and how they can get involved and they stay educated even if they don't want to be active on the task force it's still important to stay educated about what's going on because what the task forces are doing will affect you whether you like it or not and Absolutely. So you might as well have and, a voice in it and you know and I know that um you and I have talked about this before, that one of the amazing things about the American Music Therapy Association is that it advocates, when we're talking about um, state recognition, 
They're advocating on behalf of all music therapists, regardless of whether or not they are a member of the association. They are directly mm-hmm. benefiting from the advocacy that's coming from AMTA. And there's a lot of advocacy that has to happen. And I, I do think it's really important, especially for new professionals and for students, to understand. Um, I had a student who sent me an email this actually just a couple of weeks ago, and she said, oh, my gosh, I was driving home, and I heard this advertisement for music therapy. And so I went home and I looked it up, and she sent me the link. Well, you know, it was listen to these magic CDs, and they'll make you all better. Honest to God, it was listen to the CDs, they cure cancer. They, let me tell you what, as a cancer researcher, I would love it if they did. Um, Uh I'd love love to be out of a job. Um, But, you know, there's, and I looked it up and I looked at where the company was based. Well, at least the information that I could find, they're not based in North Dakota. So I emailed her back and I said, you know, I'm going to forward this to the regional representative for AMTA, um, I can't remember, they, they changed the name of the committee, but it deals with misrepresentation of the profession. The professional advocacy. Professional advocacy. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I forwarded it to, to Natasha Thomas, and, and I said, but, you know, they're not in North Dakota, so I can't do anything. They're in a neighboring state. Right. You know, they're in a neighboring state, and I said, this is why it's so important that we train that we train ourselves and we train future generations of music therapists to advocate because it's really important that we, you know, that, that people can explain what it is that we do and how it's, how it's different from the guy who's going to sell you, you know, $150 worth of CDs but aren't going to do you any good. Right. I think, I think physical therapists must go through the same thing when they see the advertisements on TV where it's like, wear this magic sock and it yes. will fix all of your problems. <laughs> <laughs> right. It will align your back and help you walk better. Yes. <laughs> um, well, it, this has been another very enlightening discussion for me. I always learn something when we talk together, and I'm so glad that you agreed to do this with me because it forces I love me to actually it. read the journals, even though it's kind of a pain to try to read them by deadline. It does force us to read them, and I love having someone else um, that's passionate talk to to talk to about it. So thanks so much for being a part of this journal club. Thank you for letting me. And enjoy your uh, hammock. And thank you all for listening. I've gotten some feedback from some of you that say that the journal club is one of your favorites um, because it helps you to stay abreast of the research when you may not have time to do it. But I do encourage you to at least read the abstracts of the articles that you have a grasp of what's in the the articles. Um, My next show is going to be on July 22nd. It's a Wednesday. It'll be another mommy support group. So tune in for that. And uh, I'm going to get with Megan to schedule our next journal club because shortly after we got this prospectus in the mail, a very thick, very thick, uh, music therapy journal of music therapy came in the mail, so it might be um, August, maybe I don't know. I'll have to get with uh, Megan and schedule that one with her. So, start reading the journal of music therapy, and we will talk to you again soon. Have a lovely summer. <laughs>